Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And welcome to The Food Fight, where we offer a different perspective on food culture issues around Australia and the world. We'll talk with chefs, producers, business owners and experts to hear their stories and find out what makes them tick. On today's show, we speak with Pat Nurse about the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival and the state of hospitality in Victoria and further afield. Welcome to another episode of the Food Fight Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Steph Postumer. I'm your host, alongside my co-host Simon Evans. Hello. <laughs> and to begin, we would like to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation and the associated language groups, the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather and speak today, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Simon, let's introduce our guest. Ooh. We're here in Docklands at... The headquarters of Melbourne Food and Wine with Pat Nurse. Mate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming up. It's nice to see you both. Pat, you've got to speak into your microphone just in case you're not media savvy. <laughs> I should be more media savvy than that. I was too busy like trying to see if I could arrange myself attractively cool. on the couch. <laughs> thank you, you look gentlemen, very for sharp. having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> you can look straight High down the barrel the whole yeah. time and <laughs> my make eyes it super really awkward. wide open. Just freaking out. <laughs> just keep doing it. Luckily, most people just listen to this podcast and they can't see what you're doing right now, yeah, Pat. We'll, you got to we'll, tune into the. You got to we'll tune into our Instagram or our to, YouTube. Uh, to, uh, don't look directly at the screen for the first twenty seconds, <laughs> um, mate. As we just mentioned before, like this is where we are. We, we are. We're in the headquarters of Food and Wine Victoria. Um, you've just wrapped up 2021 uh, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. We've just wrapped up the first of. Three, 2021 yes. Melbourne Food and Wine Festivals. The right. March edition is a wrap. Let's start. It's just a taster mm. ahead of the main meal, which is the uh, winter edition, July 30 to August 8, mfwf.com.au, which will be 10 days of Melbourne-focused programming. And then we've got the sweet finish of the regional edition, all about regional Victoria, as the name may suggest, which will run in the spring, probably yeah. in November. We're still we're still confirming that point. Um, as a creative director, I'm assuming you had a hand in the decision to have three, you know, modules, if you will, of the editions. Editions. We call them editions. Call them editions. Well, we've, we've decided to go with editions this okay. year. Okay. Well, that's a. Did you come up with the word edition or? Honestly, I can't remember. I feel like I could have been responsible for that. That was, uh, you know, 2020 was a pretty um, wild and intense time in the city of Melbourne. So a lot of Zooms, mm. a lot of lockdowns, yeah. a lot of ins, outs, ups, downs. Uh, the team, yeah. we came up with as a team. Yeah. And um, yeah, we were moving towards um, more than one festival yeah. in 2020 before the pandemic came along. So just to rewind and give you a little bit of context, mm. the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival is a, a not-for-profit organisation that has mostly taken the form of uh, a two-week-long or month-long festival in March each year. Um, it's been around since 1994. Uh, in 2020, we were going to be moving into a, a situation where we had a festival that was just Melbourne in March, uh, and then having a regional Victorian festival in the second half of the year, we had to um, postpone and then cancel our festival mm. six days out. Um, wow. We were due to launch on March 18, um, which was pretty rough timing. I know everyone had a rough 2020, mm. but yeah, we were right at the uh, forefront 
of that. Mm. And so the reason we're doing three festivals in one year, one year, three festivals, <laughs> um, is partly to give us some distance from COVID. You know, hopefully we'll be in a better place in winter. We had a raft of events that were sort of more um, weather sensitive. So there's some things that we, we ran in March just now, like the Bank of Melbourne's World's Longest Lunch, um, which is, you know, a sit-down lunch for 1,600 people that's outside that would be potentially challenging to do in winter in melbourne I mean, potentially challenging at any time but uh yeah winter more so yeah absolutely um and that's where we've landed mm-hmm. so one year three festivals so you're kind of spreading the risk throughout the year a bit spreading the joy and the joy uh <laughs> and yeah and hopefully hopefully deferring the risk yeah as well i mean it's been a it's been a pretty exciting old time in the events business in mm. in Australia, but in Victoria in particular. I mean, the cancellation of the Grand Prix on its first day yeah. was, you know, a pretty signal moment in our experience of, of COVID in Victoria. Um, and a whole bunch of um, events suppliers went to the wall that day, yeah. then and there. You know, they were so committed to um, events in Mad March in Victoria that the hammer coming down you know, really hit the the trade very hard. So, um, yeah, it's been a a, a wild ride. Mm. But having said that, I mean, you know, speaking to you as we've just closed off these two weeks of activity in March, walking into Treasury Gardens the day of, of the world's longest lunch, which has been an event we've done for the festival since its first year. It's one of our, you know, highest profile events. The feeling was incredible. Yeah, You know, it really did feel like after some fits and starts and some challenges and, you know, those challenges included the circuit breaker lockdown, that, that five-day lockdown in mm. Victoria um, coming to place the day we went on sale, which was, you know, we, we went on sale with our March program at nine o'clock on a Friday and then we had to press pause on the whole thing at noon the same day. The fact that we could sell out that event, the fact that we could have 1,600 people together eating an amazing meal um, from a menu that had been put together by Stephanie Alexander, Jacques Raymond and Philippe Michel. Um, you know, 1,600 people eating together, drinking, having fun safely. You know, I think that's a big step back in the right direction. Mm. But I think, you know, this is COVID, so we're, we're definitely not complacent about any of these things. It's not like, hey, bang, we're back in business. Um, you know, there's, you know, outbreaks here and there. It's not, it's not magically going away. Uh, it'd be great to see us vaccinated a little faster in this country. That'd mm. be amazing. I was speaking to a, an Israeli friend the other day, he said they got the whole job done in, yeah. I don't know, no time flat. Um, but the landscape has changed permanently. I guess. I guess the big one of the big exhales for us was just seeing that people wanted to come out. Mm. Yeah, you know that was a big unknown. Like throughout last year, we were just saying to ourselves, "Do people want to go to large format events? Do they feel safe? Do they feel good? Do they feel necessary?" And the answer from March was a resounding yes, which I think for anyone who works in events or hospitality is really, really encouraging. Yeah. Mm. I think there was, there was a lot of unknowns at every stage through this kind of COVID journey of, you know, what's going to change is going to be different. Are people going to come out? And I think along the way with even in, in New South Wales and in Wollongong, every little step where we're like, are we going to fill you know, more people? We've got bigger capacity. And every time we've seen people have a, a real thirst for food and drink now, which um, is pretty awesome to see. And I think people have we did miss it during lockdowns and various things. So, yeah, the fact you can still get 1,600 people for an event like that is pretty special. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's been a mixed bag, the return to trade. I mean, I know that the feeling in Melbourne, uh, for instance, last November when lockdown two ended, and that was – lockdown two is a really hard time for mm. people in this city. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a lockdown that was supposed to run – for X weeks and there was extended and extended and extended. And that was, that really took its toll psychologically on people here. Um, so the, you know, it's like a mini VE day here, the day we could all go out and eat and drink again. Mm. But I remember being shocked to hear from more than a few restaurateurs that they had things like tables of six book and not show up on the first day back. Wow. And mm. you think, come on people. Mm. I, know, I know there was a lot of talk and a lot of, uh, you know, well-intentioned hand-wringing in many a Zoom forum, uh, possibly from me, uh, over 2020 about how we'd come back different, we could come back better, and a lot of that hasn't happened, I don't think. You don't think so? Well, I mean, why would you do that if, mm. you, were, if you had more respect for the, yeah. 
for the fragility of the hospitality ecosystem, why would you book a six person reservation on the first day back when you know things are so tight and then mm. just do a no show? Yeah. Um, that blows my mind. I mean, that makes yeah, me crazy. It, it, it does blow my on mind. On any given day, on yeah. that particular day, in that particular year, back. I just think, what are you doing? Do you think? Do you think the public has a, like, you know, the general public, people outside of the hospo restaurant world, people, you know, we all know restaurateurs and, you know, chefs and all the rest of it. Do you reckon they have a misconception as to how damaging a no-show can be? As in they don't think of it? Yeah. I guess that's the only answer. Mm. I mean, why you would you do, do it, it on purpose? It's, it's not. You? No, I mean, it's not. It's not hard to call and say, "Hey, actually, I'm really sorry, I can't make it." You know, something come up. Hopefully, it's a better answer than that, and it's not. You know, a table for six, and you're just changing on a whim. But uh, what other explanation mm. is there? Yeah, well, yeah, I think um, I, I probably bring this topic topic up every podcast that. The customer really has no idea about how the economics of a restaurant work and what it takes, the, the costs, how slim the margins are, how um, you know, that can hit you massively. Yeah. And then I mean, coming out of a pandemic, you think they'd have some sort of uh, thought there, but people really don't think about it or even consider it. And I mean, the, the flip side is you end up with things like needing to give a tissue sample before you can get a booking or you need yeah. to pre-authorize your credit card or places that don't take bookings, all of which make some sectors of the public livid. And mm. you think, well, this wouldn't be necessary if you just did it. This is why you can't have nice things. Yeah. You know, but you know, how, I'm not going to jump up and down and, and yell at the dining public because I am a member of the dining public. But yeah, that, that I just find that hard to understand. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple... Um, couple of places in Sydney who sort of called out people for not showing when we first came out of lockdown um, in New South Wales. And I think Esther and Polly had some big yeah, shows on the yeah. first, first weeks back in, in New South Wales. And they were calling out. I think I, I said, from what I've seen, people have been a bit better and a bit more, especially like prepayments and things like that. People well, that's the question is, so. do you, like from your you know conversations with restaurant owners and chefs, um, you know, a, a vast proportion of people have adapted their systems to include, you know, holding deposits and prepayments and all that sort of thing. Has the public been receptive to that and understanding of those changes in policy from, you know, the conversations you've had or are people resisting it? I think it depends on who you are. I mean, if you're if you're a restaurant that's in demand, people will just take it. Yeah, okay. And, you know, I mean, I remember uh, a CEO at my old job. I used to work for, for Gourmet Traveller magazine and, and the CEO of our, well, one of the CEOs that I served under was really into Fred's. He's yeah. like, you know, the restaurant in Paddington. And he said, I really want to go at 7.30 or 8 o'clock on a, on a Friday or a Saturday. You know, but I just, whenever I ring up, it's never available. I look on the website, it's never there. And I'm like, well, that just doesn't exist to yeah. you. Like their economic model is based on sixes and eights mm. and double sittings all the way through you know there's thirty six thousand dollars worth of french antique breadboards on the wall there like yeah. they, they, you've got to pay for them somehow mm. um and you know if you want a seven thirty, you see he's saying oh and i see people sitting down at seven thirty on a saturday i'm like yeah but you've either need to have been spending a bunch of money there for a long time or you need an in otherwise yeah. You're at the mercy of the algorithm or the mercy of the, the booking system. You know, it's mm. just the reality. And I think maybe people that hasn't dawned on them, but that's also what's happened here. Um, and by here, I mean Australia, but probably particularly Melbourne is a lot of places are just having to really put the screws to when and how you can book and do all those sorts of things. So, yeah, look, I mean, if your restaurant's in demand, you can do that. If your supply outstrips the demand, that's, that's a different question. Mm. You know? mm. right. um, I mean, at the moment, demand is up. I mean, the big, mm. I think the big thing that's putting the brakes on a lot of operators, and I say this cognizant of thing, things being really tough in a lot of the Melbourne CBD still because walk-in trade is not back where it, where it should be because a lot of people just aren't back at work. The other big thing putting the brakes on everything is staff. You know, like, mm. I know there's a lot of operators here who are like, hey, you know, I could fill this restaurant three times over. I'd love to open for breakfast. I'd love to open back to the hours I was doing pre-COVID, but I just can't get the staff. Mm. Yeah, we've yeah. had we've been having exactly yeah, that well, same conversation with all the chefs we've interviewed. Gimlet, it's the same thing about they want to do brunch, but how do you, you can't put that much pressure on your team. Mm. Um, I've, yeah, I've heard it across across Australia. People I've been talking to in Sydney to Melbourne, um, 
everywhere, everyone, regional especially, where it's always been hard for staff there. Just there isn't enough people to to you know, staff your shifts. And you when, don't want to fry the staff you have. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's the thing. I mean, on the one hand, there's there's the people you don't have, who you can't add, and then you really need to hang on to the people you've got. Mm. And that will probably disincline you to put on a brunch menu. Mm. And I love brunch. I know. Damn it, I <laughs> want I more brunch. brunch. <laughs> Mate, let's go back to um to what you what you do here. Um, and, that's, and that's the challenge I'm actually... I mean, that flows through events as well. Like yeah. I'm, I'm in the process of um, confirming people for our festival um, in winter, the winter edition, July 30 to August 8, mfwf.com.au. It's a book. And... Uh, lots of people already I've had a few no's unfortunately and it's it's just that you know we're, we're trying to run a restaurant and we just can't mm. ordinarily they'd be there in force they're people who've supported the festival over many years but you need staff mm. to be able to do stuff on the side so you know the, the restaurant trade is certainly hanging on some people are doing pretty well some people are not doing so well but all that bonus stuff extra stuff growth I think that's on pause for the moment mm. or it's slow. I mean, it's 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 hard to get chefs to step outside their kitchen, especially sort of chef owners that are very hands-on, to step outside their kitchen, you know, on the best of times, not not in, you know, let alone a recovery from yeah. a pandemic with minimal staff and, and bills to pay and all the rest of it. So... Yeah, it's just a it's I mean, just a an added pressure. Of, uh, people who are in a nice nice executive chef role have definitely uh, been back in the kitchen more. Yeah, because you're enough staff. Yeah, got this knife's broken. It keeps cutting my hand. Yeah, <laughs> chef, try the other end. Yeah, it's been a while. So just like a golf club, just yeah. try the other side. <laughs> yeah. um, can we talk? I want to talk about you know the the role of this organization and and the festival itself. Do you to bring the best of the food and drink world to Victoria and to bring the best of Victorian food and drink to the world? Okay, wonderful. It's available on a bumper sticker. You wanted a mug? <laughs> I've got a tattoo down my my left calf. Do you, and do you think the role of, of festivals is is more important now in this time when hospitality has been hit and is struggling? Do you feel as even maybe sort of more pressure on yourself to to lend a hand, as it were, or lend your voice or, or whatever it might be to, to kind of give a little, uh, little helping hand to the hospitality industry? I, I don't know about pressure, but it's certainly we're glad to have the opportunity. Like, we're really, um, we're really fortunate, I guess, to be able to connect the dots sometimes. Um, Pre-COVID, you know, at the beginning of, of 2020, I came back from summer holidays, actually having been uh, having spent New Year's Eve in an evacuation centre, or the day of New Year's Eve, I should say, in an evacuation centre in Bega, following the fires. Came back to Melbourne. Um, you know, my phone was ringing, as was as were the phones of several of my colleagues with people in hospitality in Victoria, saying, "What can we do to help? Yeah. You know, what can we do for the people?" you know, in northeast Victoria, in Gippsland, all around the state, in the rest of Australia, how can we help? Mm -hmm. And that was their first thought. They were on the phone straight away. Um, You know, hospitality was very much on the front foot there. And we used our... um, We we switched off our festival for, you know, we're in the middle of the campaign for what was going to be our March festival. We put that on pause. We turned our resources, our administration our ability to market things to a bushfire recovery effort um it was absolutely the chefs and restaurateurs doing the work they had the you know they they went out and cooked for free you know mm. we had a whole bunch of chefs who did um you know ten thousand dollar dinners for 10 private customers and things like that and we raised you know a healthy six-figure amount um for the bushfire effort just because we were well placed to be able to respond quickly to be able to connect audiences with chefs with people with good ideas and all those sorts of things and that was a lot of the work we did in um 2020 um not traditionally part of our remit but we provided forums for people to talk about things that were important to hospitality we did everything from you know looking at how you can donate food that you can't sell to trying to help people sell their food when when lockdowns came in we you know got people on to talk about how to negotiate with your landlord how to talk to your bank manager Mm. um and just also gave people a forum to talk to each other you know what were the challenges facing regional operators what was happening with 
operators in the Melbourne CBD. How do you close a restaurant? We also looked at just, you know, recently we do this series of industry forums. We're also looking at the opportunities, you know, is now a good time to open a business? Mm. And we spoke to people who had been um, locked out of work or had seen an opportunity in COVID to start a business of their own, you know. So these are things that, that we're, we've been interested in as, as a festival that um, – in the way of the pandemic has sort of accelerated things that we were looking at anyway. And so, yeah, I, I do think we have a role to play in um, helping with the recovery effort, particularly in the Melbourne CBD. Um, we ran a program with the city of Melbourne called New Year Street Feasts, where we work with the city to add several thousand seats to the city. Mm-hmm. So we're still under, um, I mean, we're still under density restrictions now, but we're under more severe density restrictions then. Um, and this was, you know, a night of the year when ordinarily you can make some clover. Mm. Um, so we wanted to help the city do that in a safe way. And, you know, there's other opportunities that we're pursuing uh, in that way for the rest of the year. A lot of what we do is about communicating uh, what's going on and communicating enthusiasm as well. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, we're not a lobby body per se. That's yeah. not, not why we're incorporated, but it has become... We, we sort of do some advocacy, I guess. Mm. And we do a lot of agitating for um, hospitality behind the scenes as well. We're not a government organisation, but we are funded in part by government. So, you know, we have connections there and in business. So, yeah, we, we try to do what we can. Mm. Are, there, are there any other organisations, to your knowledge, who have such a broad scope of like what we're talking about now is sort of outside the purview of just putting on a festival and putting on great events and things like that um you know in in a way like would you say sort of aside from i don't i don't know of any others that do exactly what we do i mean there's there's some great organizations um you know margaret river puts on a fantastic show but that's that's very much a for-profit arrangement um and it's you know, pretty much just in that one end of the year. Tasting Australia has just been on or is still on right now. Again, great festival, you know, does great things for for Adelaide and for South Australia. Um, But we're a a 12-month-a-year organisation. Even before we'd moved to doing multiple festivals, we'd moved to sort of um, joining up the year with things like our Legends program, which acknowledges people who've had a, you know, wine producer's wine sellers shopkeepers chefs restaurateurs educators people who've made a big contribution to the food and drinks scene in victoria over decades um we have a scholarship program that's funded by host plus where we uh in an ordinary year would um take one young australian hospitality person and you know fly them around the world to go and work with if they're a coffee person, a bunch of coffee producers, or if they're a front of house person, our, our last winner, Julie Devane, who, who works for Merivale in Sydney, wanted to look um, at the different roles that women can play in management in restaurants around the world. And she'd mm. identified a whole bunch of venues that she thought did that well. Um, so we, we have those sorts, we have those things going on and we tie it all together with content, with stories. So mm. my background is journalism. That's part of the reason I've, I've come here. It, the job I do is a hybrid of, um, curation or as I like to break that down choosing things you know let's <laughs> and I work with we've got a great events team here and uh, I work with Amy Luxton our head of events here to sort of try and come up with great fun compelling ideas for the festival itself and then um, we also want to function as a platform for telling stories about mm. this you know people in food and drink in the state of Victoria was that something that were you, did you think that would be some of the scope when you took the role of see without being able to predict a pandemic? Um, was that was the idea of that was this yeah that was where we were going. I mean, again, it's the I guess having this already in train uh, put us in a better place for the doing the work we did in the pandemic than maybe it would have done if we'd just been a straighter events company in the way maybe the festival has traded before. Mm. You know, a lot of festivals in and out of the food world do what they do for that one frenzied period of activity Mm. and now that i've been working here i realize that there's you know maybe 10 months of planning that go into that um but then are pretty quiet on the public facing side of things for the rest of the year and that's sort of not where we're at now so Mm. yeah it was it was something that we were doing anyway and and obviously this is really just um i guess heightened the value of that Mm. and for you was it the was was it a change of role from uh from writing from reviewing 
was that something you were looking for? You're looking to move away from that, or was it just a, uh, a, an opportunity that came up? I think, I mean, this job looked particularly good to me because it was, um, well, one, it was in Melbourne, and I've lived, I'd lived in Sydney, Sydney for 20 years. And I really like Sydney. It's a great place to eat and drink, um, but sort of Melbourne maybe has a bit more going on food-wise. Mm. Restaurant, the restaurant scenes are comparable, but I think when you get into the, the larger food scene, um, particularly the the everyday eating and drinking, I th- I'm finding it a much richer city in that regard um, than Sydney. Uh, so I guess yeah, it was it was sort of partly being able to take what I knew and repurpose it, and also learn some new things. I'd done a bit of eventing uh, over the time I was at Gourmet Traveler, but this is you know a lot more obviously. Mm. Pat, you mentioned. Your role as a person who chooses things. Um, chooser. A chooser. Mm. Or curator. And it's a the, word I really hate and it's well, kind was, of hilarious that I've ended we've up been in talking a about this. We've been talking about terminology. We might as well uh, ask, yeah. ask Pat because we've Curation. been talking. Yeah. How are you feeling about the amount of um, different programs that restaurants have? <laughs> so like a bread program and a... I think it's hilarious. Chicken, yeah. I love you, it. Yeah. A gluten yeah. program. Soap program. Yeah. Yeah. I blame Alain Ducasse. Yeah? yeah, was he the first person who's had who had I programs? I don't use the word program, but what else can we blame? Uh, might have been French. When you think back to the last time you were at the Louis Cannes, for instance, mm, in course. Monaco, mm, mm. think about all those trolleys that he had when he was there when he was first gunning for his three stars. He was all, <laughs> and it's it's a very Monaco thing to do. Mm. Yeah, like Monaco is pretty crass, and he knows his customer, old Alain. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> he put his finger on the fact that those people are very much. You know, the, the tax avoiding rich are very more is more people. So you get the bread, yeah. there's 36 breads yeah. that have all been baked fresh that day and they're all great. Yeah. And there'll be nine butters and there'll be a huge bell of butter under a beautiful antique cloche and now the, the dude will be there scraping yeah. the butter. And then, mm. you know, the the one that really blew me away was the, and there's no, nine other trolleys. You there's want the tea trolley. trolley. You the tea trolley is yeah. incredible. Yeah. Have I've, not, seen, I've, the I've seen people the tea trolley attend is the tea trolley. It's beautiful. It's a forest. It's a forest of fresh herbs and a man, and it's pretty much usually a man in this restaurant, puts on these white white felt gloves. This guy's probably just the Tissan guy. He puts on these white felt gloves (laughs) and this beautiful heavy pair of scissors and snips all the fresh herbs, you know, into a teapot, hot water. Amazing. That's pretty amazing. uh, Actually, I remember the last time I smoked a cigar in a restaurant was at... um, the Louis Cans, because I'm not cigar a cigar program. guy. You know, who wants to be a cigar guy? Probably mm, not me. Yeah. But <laughs> um, actually, side note, while you're Googling Engram, check out, I can't remember which cigar company it was, but there was a, a bunch of high-profile chefs who I won't name, international chefs, who did a YouTube ad for some cigars, and it's just almost the most perfect parody, except that it's real, of <laughs> yeah, I love what that. the international high-flying... Um, ad chasing chefs go for. Mm. <laughs> anyway, inside note. Um, again, oh, can I add a fact to that? Did you know that Michael Jordan smokes seven cigars a day? Now or in his now, career? Now. He smokes yeah, right. seven a day. He always loved a cigar. Isn't that disgusting? You, 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 that's, that's heavy. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, And probably two bottles of whiskey or something like that. But you reckon? He's a whiskey guy. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Mm. Good on him. I mean, he's mate, he's a billionaire. Yeah, he's, he's fine, yeah, yeah, he's why not? What else is he going to do? Yeah. Seven cigars. His basketball um, team anyway, right. sorry. The, you know, cigar trolley, same deal. Mm. Cigars from around the world. You get a cigar, a man spends 10 minutes, you know, lighting it off a cedar taper and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, yeah, I blame Alain Ducasse. Mm, great. Mm. Um, yeah, pro- I, I like programs and curation. I feel like it's a bit silly... I feel like it is. It sort of sometimes makes me wonder if it's a, a lack of confidence on the part of the restaurateur and also a lack of understanding of how to dine on the part of the customer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and it's people want to blame their phones, but I, I've been, a, I used to be a restaurant critic pretty much full time. And before phones became things that people looked at throughout the course of their meal, I would go to restaurants, let's say it's the year 2001, and I'd go to a fancy restaurant and I'd see the table, people at the table next for me on a you know, fancy date, maybe it was an anniversary, and they would sit there for three hours and not talk to yeah, each other. Yeah, you see that. I mean, now it's creepy that people are looking at their phones, but at least they're like catching up on what Michael Jordan is smoking <laughs> yeah. or like, yeah. you know, what the Kardashians are doing. Before yeah. they were mm. just like 
humming. I don't know what. Mm. And I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's it it's you know probably soft target territory, but degustation dining is maybe not my favorite kind of dining when it's great it's great but i do wonder sometimes if it's a godsend for people who just have nothing to say to each other Mm. you know whether it's a group or a couple and i've watched them and you think along comes the waiter announces a dish that probably takes longer to announce than it does to eat and then they can talk about that and that gives them a little bump of Mm. 10 more minutes conversation and then they lapse back into silence and then along comes another course and for me, I can tell I'm in a restaurant where that is the usual mode of dining because I'll be with someone and we'll be like talking and, you know, the person I'm with might be telling a joke and the waiter will come with the plate and maybe the little stupid jug of thing to pour on the plate yeah. and they'll sort of hover there and clear their throat or just charge in and interrupt you in the middle of your mm. conversation mm. as though that's what it's about. And it's not about you having a good time. Mm. And I think, what the fuck? Mm. I think some, I can't remember it was. Someone described meals like that as a meal of a thousand thank yous. Yeah. Because you're constantly going, oh, oh my thank goodness. You. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, which I think, I find a question. My Beverage pairings. There is no natural setting in the world for having 12 tiny drinks. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't care who you are. Like, I don't know what kind of wine-tasting genius you are, but after you've had the third, like, artisanal mead after a, yeah. you know, a sake uh, Russian, yeah. Russian sake after a whatever, <laughs> whatever. And I like weird booze. You know, mm. I've got to say, I'm really on the front foot with weird booze and trying new things. But when you've had that, plus 12 courses that are all really varied, I mean, my hat is off to the feats of memory mm. that are being um, accomplished by people on the floor with this stuff. But who has the palate for that? Mm. You know, like it's just, and it has no, it just doesn't make sense except on the bottom line. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's not what a good meal is about. It's not, it wouldn't be fun if you're at someone's house. I mean, over and over again, you think, do these people actually know how to give a good dinner party? Mm. You know, like would would these people on the other side, the guests, would they be any good? Would they be good company at your house? Like that's what hospitality is over and over again. Like what would I do if this was my house? Would I say, no, you can't have any salt, you know, dick move, mm. um, you know, and, and the flips of that applies to guests as well. Mm. Like you need to, you know, not be a jerk about it. But do you think that comes down to fatigue from dining at so many restaurants? Me talking like, yeah, this? yeah, absolutely. Cause, um, you know, I've, cause if you don't do it often, you're like, Oh, this is amazing. They didn't even have yeah. any salt on the table. This is incredible. <laughs> I've definitely had this conversation with chefs, Mm. where they're like, maybe I've written in a review or they're just asking for feedback. And I'm like, well, did it really need to be four hours long? Yeah. You know, and did there really need to be so much food? Like, of course, the worst sin you can commit is underfeeding people. Mm. That is the worst. And the phrase, oh, yeah, it was okay, but I had to go for a happy meal with the missus on the way home. Yeah. You know, that makes your blood run cold and your stomach turn. But the only thing worse than being underfed is being overfed. Yeah. So it's tough. And if you go to restaurants all the time, you'll be like, ugh, no, too much. But these chefs have said to me, and quite rightly, if you've been on a waiting list for six months and you don't go to restaurants very often and, you know, it's over and done in 90 minutes, does that feel special? Yeah. I don't know. But having said that, there is the economy of gesture. You know, five's good. I think five courses is great. If you can't say it in five courses, don't say it. Yeah, do it doesn't need to be four hours long. You don't need to be there after midnight. There are ways of working it out. Unfortunately, a lot of it comes down to how well the front of house people are reading the table. And to come back to the conversation, we're just going to have over and over again. Really great front of house people like that are in mm. short supply. Yeah, massively. Do you, do you think? I don't know. Like, there's a there's a big spectrum of people that dine out for different reasons. Do you think that if people are paying top dollar, they feel like they're getting enough out of? you know, the seasonal menu at, at a neighborhood, you know, wine bar that's that's 100 bucks, 90 bucks or something like that. And, you know, they just kind of get dropped whatever and it, they're in and out quickly. Like, I think it's the balance. you know, the less discerning public. It's where I want to eat. Yeah. You know. Where do, where do you want to eat at the moment in Melbourne? 
Oh. What's what's providing the experience that's the counterpoint to well, the... Well, you know, I'm going to run completely counter to everything I've just said and talk about how much I love the tasting menu and anchovy at the moment. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's short, it's to the point, mm. and so it does, it does things that... Uh, no, it's in Richmond. Yeah, um, okay. And it does things that you can do in a tasting menu that you can't do in an a la carte context. Mm. Like, I just... I think just people don't really get what a tasting menu is supposed to do yeah um, i don't understand how you can have a 20 something course tasting menu that's that's well, really for one whenever you get a 20 course tasting <laughs> menu they take some liberties with what constitutes a course it's way too much washing up like it's well, yeah. really environmentally yeah. unfriendly to yeah. use that many plates mm. well i think it's the balance i think um my first people i worked for and as a chef were both ex-critics for air guide in the uk and and had move on to a restaurant and i quite i like their opinion of they were a bit jaded and they'd had way too many tasting menus of, of you know, increasing scale at the time in, in London. Um, and they had really good sort of grounding, but I think it's, it's almost a good link. Chefs have this idea what they want to do and the finances come into it. The customer has this idea. And I think food writers and critics sit somewhere in the middle and quite a good bridge of, of, of what's the, the, maybe the best way to go. Like how, how do you get balance out of a tasting menu? I don't think chefs think that hard about what, people want and who their customer is i think they think i want to do this and i'm going to do this and the biggest shift i think this is heston blumenthal's line but i think he's right the biggest shift probably in dining in the last 50 years has been or 100 years has been the shift from restaurants being run by restaurateurs to restaurants being run by chefs it's interesting change that there are some good things to come out of that the food's probably a hell of a lot better but there's this idea that the food is what it's all about. And I say this as someone who works for food festival and spends all his time and money thinking about food. It's not about the food. You know, the food and drink is there to bring us together, to make us feel better, to make us have a great time and a great conversation and sit taller in our chairs and be funnier and better looking and smarter and more engaging. It's not here to dissect this. Mm. That's a boring dinner party. Mm. There can be a bit of that. But if that's all you're talking about, it's like coming away from a musical humming the scenery. Mm. You know, mm. it's not how it's supposed to work. We'll just mm. put a trigger warning on that for all the chefs out there. Well, no, I really hope, <laughs> for I really hope that you're listening um, to this because this is a really important thing. It's the food and drink should be as good as you should make it, as, as good as you can make it. You know, and this is a noble calling and it deserves respect. It's a hard job and making it delicious is really important, but it's not the be all and end all the restaurant experience is part of the restaurant experience and you know it's such a cliche but uh, is the restaurant that has great food and terrible service the busy the busy one or is it the restaurant that has okay food and great service yeah you know do you, do you think we are rating or say we i probably mean yourself and the people in the media um <laughs> like do we do do we are, we are we rating restaurants wrong you think where, you know, is it the places that get three stars, three hats, they tend to be chef's ego on a plate. Obviously, they have everything else going on for them, but they are very chef and food focused. Is, is that what we're still going to define as a great dining experience in the, in the you know, coming years? I think, I think that's changing already and for the better. I think it's just tricky to... Mm. I mean, I had a restaurateur saying to me the other day is it fair that we rate casino restaurants next to independent operators i'm like there's no level playing field like casinos are an outsized example of that Mm. but you know it is what it is the Mm. punter comes to it cold they don't necessarily know your backstory you know they're just trying to figure out if their dollar goes the way it should Mm. you know are are the expectations that you're setting with the prices and the vibe of your offer being met and it doesn't matter if you're a fine dining restaurant or a skyscraper or if you're you know a relatively inexpensive place jam between two other relatively inexpensive expensive places on a side street is the follow-through there Mm. are you doing a good job a lot of i think a lot of this stuff and i'll probably get annihilated on the internet for saying this but i think there are some things that might be universal in this stuff i know it's not a very postmodern way to think but you know do i feel like the people running this business care Mm. Mm. that counts for a lot and i think um in a dining landscape where groups are becoming more dominant for a variety of reasons that's becoming a rare and more exciting feeling like feeling like the person serving you the food or cooking you the food or doing whatever with with the bar or the restaurant or the cafe or whatever actually gives a damn 
about whether you enjoy yourself or not, about what they're putting on the plate or in the glass. That's super important Mm. to me. I really care about that. And those fine dining, whatever, degustation restaurants, maybe they're paying people more. Maybe they tell a better story to their staff. Maybe the staff are brainwashed by the international fanciness of the chef or the cult of that business. And they will often at least have the semblance of caring more Mm. uh, than maybe a lot of places in the middle. And then you'll get those places that are like, you know, tiny little owner-operated places where the person serving you probably owns the business or has a stake in it. That's exciting. But that middling stuff where, I don't know, they don't care if you live or die. Mm. They don't say hello when you walk in. They don't say goodbye when you walk out. Mm. I don't know if I want to spend my money there. Mm. Do you you think, I mean, we're talking about non-level playing fields and Simon and I are from a regional area. And one thing that we always bang on about is the contrast. You've had a great year. Yeah, oh, well, like if you, if you want South to compare, Coast of New yeah, South if Wales, want, if you want to compare God's country, but if yeah. you, you know, if you want to talk to an operator here in the docklands of the Melbourne CBD right now, compared to yeah. an operator in regional Victoria, they'd say this has been a year that's really pointed to that being very circumstantial. Yeah, yeah. but I guess like what I was getting to in terms of, um, you know, do the people care? And as you said, like maybe it's something that they're trained to do and they're just really good at their jobs and stuff. But one of the things that the South Coast doesn't have or any regional area doesn't have a lot of is full-time hospitality professionals, front-of-house professionals. Oh, I burned and- it, eh? <laughs> oh, I burned it again, eh? That's, that's, a, that's an exact quote from a friend of mine who used to run a restaurant on the coast of New South Wales. And he'd come from – he was an SSS trained guy from here. He'd worked at very high-end restaurants in Sydney – he and his partner took a tree change and <laughs> he was just just trying to get people to show up. Mm, I yeah. mean I mean hiring hospitality staff in or out of regional Australia right now is you hire anyone who shows up. Yeah. Do you have a head? Yeah. Optional. Yeah. You know? Have you not it's not have you worked in a restaurant, it's like have you ever been to a restaurant? Yeah. yeah. Have you this is a fork a that's before. a knife, you know? And that's not going to improve overnight. Yeah, you know robots. I don't know chefs serving the food directly. I think one of the things that's so notable dining around Melbourne and especially at the you know quality of establishments we've visited so far is mm. is those front of house full timers that make you that that make you feel like they care and want you there and are so knowledgeable and that's that's something that elevates an experience so yeah. so much and, and they show the other stuff how it can be yeah as well. It's, but those people are so incredibly valuable oh. you know those role models yeah unbelievable yeah i mean i think the the one thing possibly coming out of the staff shortage is staff are getting some pretty good offers um good when it comes to wages hours time off um which has been a long time coming for the chef industry yeah. but you know we've we've had to you know up how much we pay staff to get staff in mm. we've looked at other people hiring the same thing so staff hopefully and be able to sort of pick where they go um, we'll come up with a, a good deal through some of this. So mm. hopefully that in turn will attract people to stay in industry, to join industry, and hopefully that will strengthen it. Who's mm. going to pay for that? How are you paying for that? This is the... Well, I mean, like I said, at the moment, luckily South Coast is booming, so we need more staff because we have more people coming. So that, that economy is working straight away. Whether that continues when international tra- uh, travel opens back up, and that's the big worry. Um, and I think that'd be the worry about people, maybe big groups looking to buy in regional towns like some are. Uh, some some big groups from Sydney have starting to look at regional places. Well, is it also that, about. That, mm. that I mean they talk a lot about you know the the flocking to regional from from the from the cities mm. from the maybe, metropolitan maybe Byron, but. but oh the south coast of New South Everywhere, Wales, though. mate. I tell you I mean, what, I'm trying to look at property down there at the moment, and mm. it's at an all time high. Um, so perhaps there's going to be some more money down there yeah. that, that I mean, perhaps that's happening there yeah, is a yeah. permanent or at least generational demographic shift underway in australia right now and it'll be it'll be to the benefit of regional mm. hospitality in yeah. australia and, and it could be as oblique as just more people in these centers who can you know telecommute or whatever mm. or it could be as direct as i am a hospitality professional i'm done with the cbd of this city i am moving to the sticks and i want a job i mean i've definitely spoken to restaurateurs in the in the regions over the years who have been like oh my god like this guy and his wife moved to town and he's an ex rock pool manager or he's worked for the ivy in london you just think 
you know, they're just like, oh my God, I can't believe this person has landed in my lap. Mm, you know, because mm. where else would I get someone like this to you try and run the kind of restaurant that I want to run? Yeah, but it's definitely. luck of the draw. But, yeah. you know, with however many tens of thousands of people moving to regional Australia, there'll be a few hospitality diamonds in that mix for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and you're seeing it. You're seeing it. Sort I mean, of it, it all comes down to, um, and this has been a problem for a while, is customers are going to have to get used to paying more for food. Or, you know, it's not even paying, well, yeah, it's paying more, but it's paying what food is actually worth. It, mm. Like, food is, restaurant food is generally quite underpriced for the amount you have to pay to run a restaurant. Mm. In, in the current model, maybe Who's going to pay us more? Who's going to solve our... Uh, salary stagnation issues in the workplace. Do you think that this is a do you think that this is real wages in Australia have not gone up since 1975? Are we, uh, is the hospitality industry going to I mean like we've faced crises in the form of bushfires, floods and pandemics over the last whatever, but before all this we've talked to numerous guests about we like this is a broken industry and if the you know the coefficient of wages versus costs keeps going in the way that it is. It's just going to be impossible to run like a successful venue. Like, I mean, it's why a lot of, pe- lot of let us ask you, Pat, Do you see like can government play a role in fixing the issue? Can is there a way of convincing the public or educating the public about what they should be spending on food? Will that then make them dine less? So it negates the whole purpose of paying more i mean where to do you do you have you like I, it's you a tricky time to look it. into the crystal ball because yeah. i mean you know, there's a lot of talk about we're, we're being a lot of talk about us being in a k-shaped recovery okay you know like people who are doing who are doing okay before or who are doing well are doing a lot better and people who are on the way down before are a lot worse off um it really depends on where your restaurant's positioned yeah you know i mean as tough as things are in restaurants right now if you're doing well you're doing really well yeah you know like have you seen how much caviar people be, seem to be selling in sydney and yeah. melbourne <laughs> just caviar you know there's a global health there. crisis on and yeah li- we don't seem to be able to people are licking caviar <laughs> off each other's hands i mean that suggests a kind of broken but you know some people are making out like bandits yeah, yeah um disparity. i don't i don't think the government's going to help anytime soon no. uh i think was it de Blasio, the New York mayor, or maybe it was Cuomo, the, the governor, last year when the you know plight of restaurants in New York, which is you know very serious, was put to them. They said, you know, restaurants are an optional activity for elites, mm. which is the view of which is not not an inaccurate diagnosis. No. I mean, it'd be hard to argue about that with some restaurant spaces. Yeah, I mean, um, having said that, I remember talking to a friend in Hong Kong about um, shutdowns. And he said they didn't, I think they tried it for a day in Hong Kong. And then they realized that thousands of people don't have kitchens. Mm. Yeah, wow. So you can't shut the restaurants in Hong Kong because people won't be able to eat. Mm. Mm. Uh, Australia is neither of those extremes, but a lot of what we do and a lot of what we love is optional, but so is culture, mm. you know, so is what makes it a great place to live and, and be. You yeah. know? So I, I think it is worth preserving. I think it is worth rescuing. Restaurants kind of fall between the cracks in how they're represented in, in government. Is it food? Is it business? Is it health? Tourism. Is it agriculture? Is it tourism? Um, I think people recognize that restaurants have a value and a role to play, but there's a bit of like, that's not my section chef going on, I think, with with how and whether governments can, can help restaurants. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we're very lucky here in Victoria to have the support of the state government. That's, you know, uh, it's the... Uh, Department of Jobs, Precincts and Regions that funds what we do in large part through Visit Victoria. Mm. Um, but there's not a comparable organisation as we were talking no. about before yeah. in New South Wales no. or, or Queensland or any of the other states. So I think we're exception rather than rule there. Mm. And Melbourne is a city in, that prides itself on the quality of its food. You know, it's one of the things that makes Melbourne, Melbourne. Well, so I think I think people have realised they have to invest in that. Yeah, and they have to put their money with their mouth. Like, is. Yeah, that's part or of the, the attraction of Australia is there's a, the great food, the great eating, great ingredients, and then they do very little to actually help that. Mm. Yeah, I, and I don't think we realise how good we've got it. I mean, mm. the food, I don't want to be all like, oh, Australia's the best there is, but I've travelled a lot writing about food and drink, and the quality here is so high oh, yeah. you know like we really punch way above our weight here it's ridiculous the quality of the coffee 
amazing. Yeah, that's, Wine's pretty that's good. good. You know, restaurants for a, a nation of our age and size, it's remarkable. Mm. You know, and you know, you look at the cool wine bars in New York and London. It's the you know a lot of you're seeing a lot of stuff being lifted from totally. Sydney and Melbourne there. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so it'd be good if we owned that a bit more, mm. you know, and recognize that. Not broke our arms, patting ourselves on the back. There's a lot that could be fixed. There's a lot that could be better, but we do have it pretty good here. Yeah, uh, and we should invest in that. Yeah, you know, we we should recognize it and we shouldn't take it for granted. Totally, um, Pat. How can people? Tell us the next two editions of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival and how people can get involved once more before we finish. The next edition of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival is the winter edition, July 30 to August 8, all about Melbourne. The Queen Victoria Market will be our hub. Hop on to mfwf.com.au to be first with the latest and stay tuned Mm. for news of our regional edition coming your way in regional Victoria in the spring. Fantastic. Mate, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you for coming down. Hello, dear listeners. Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Food Fight. If you want to get in touch with us, it's at The Food Fight Podcast on Instagram or The Food Fight Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and we want to talk to you. Please leave us a five star review on iTunes. That really helps. If you want to hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or at quicksandfood on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Simon, it's Simon underscore Evans underscore TBD on Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you again with another episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.